Hello and a very warm welcome to 20 Minutes With, a podcast brought to you by Proximo, a leading source of news and data for the project finance, energy and infrastructure industry. My name is Thomas Hopkins and I am Deputy Editor at Proximo. On this episode, Proximo brings you 20 Minutes with Will Sheard, Director of Analysis and Due Diligence at K2 Management. Will is going to be discussing the current cost pressures facing offshore wind turbine manufacturers and some potential solutions to the problems confronting the sector. Uh, Will, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, Before we start, perhaps you could just tell me a bit about your background and some of the work you do at uh, K2 Management. Sure, very happy to do so, and and thanks for having me on. Um, So, yeah, so our role, or my role at K2 Management is is to lead the analysis and due diligence department, Um, and we are focused on... I suppose, particularly on the due diligence side, which is probably what we'll be focused on mostly today, uh, supporting clients with uh, acquisition and lenders due diligence uh, services, um, providing you know, technical advisory support um, to you know to support the uh, you know, acquisition and project financing of you know all types of renewable energy projects, but you know particularly the large offshore wind projects. Um, and I've been with K2 Management for six years. Uh, I started in the due diligence team as a senior consultant. And prior to that, uh, I've, I've spent time you know, across the wind industry, but mostly working in, in wind turbine development. Um, and so I did a tenure with Siemens Wind Power and also Quiet Revolution, a small wind uh, turbine manufacturer um, since leaving university. Right. Thanks, Will. And uh, it certainly sounds like you've got uh, a lot of sort of background knowledge of the offshore wind space. And I'm sure that listeners will be really interested to hear your thoughts on the offshore wind kind of manufacturing space, because I suppose it's not something that we necessarily think of in terms of the manufacturers sort of automatically when we're talking about the kind of current cost pressures that are facing the offshore wind sector. You know, one's mind might easily run to developers or lenders, but I think it's important, you know, manufacturers are obviously hugely crucial to the project development. And so, um, perhaps if I ask an initial question, I wondered if you could tell me, just from your perspective, what you think some of the key pressures currently facing offshore wind developers and and uh, and turbine manufacturers are at, at present time. Yeah, and I think if I sort of focus on on the European markets, particularly at the moment where you know where the, the offshore wind industry is is now maturing, I think a lot of the cost pressures that we're seeing are from the the pressure to uh, lower the cost of energy uh, and lower the, the the cost to consumers. I think there's been a you know, strong. I think that in in the last ten to fifteen years of development of the offshore wind industry, there's been this um, objective to reduce the the cost of offshore wind in general from what was a relatively high uncompetitive level down to now what is a you know a very competitive level and probably one of the lowest forms of new generation that that can be developed. Um, and so I think the cost pressures have come from, you know, the uh, governments and developers needing to uh, develop projects at lower and lower cost, and that, that those requirements have been passed on to the supply chain. I think it's a, more or less as simple as that. Thanks, Will. And, and just thinking about a particular pressure, just sort of, you know, given that obviously you were saying that developers um, need to get costs down, need to deliver low bids, and therefore that puts pressure on turbine manufacturers to deliver, you know, very efficient machines at a, at a low, low cost to reduce the levelized cost of energy. I just wondered also just 
given that situation, how exposed manufacturers are to fluctuations in the price of materials such as steel, see a crucial component in, in turbines, mm-hmm. because yeah. I imagine that having to reduce the levelized cost of energy and being faced with um, higher costs there might be a significant uh, issue at the moment. It is. And I think this is where, you know, as we, I think particularly in my current experience as a, as a lender's technical advisor, something we do quite a lot of, you know, we see this process in, in time, which I think is a, a key consideration that, you know, for you know, in the UK, for example, for a CFD bid um, and for, you know, subsequent, you know, development of the business case, you know, the developers need to be pretty sure about the about the, um, the the large capex components for the project, so particularly the foundations and the and the, and the wind turbines, for example, um, and so developers are requiring quite fixed prices relatively early on in in the in the project process, um, potentially a few or several years away from actual manufacturing and installation. So, as we've seen, you know, commodity prices can change quite significantly in that time, and while there are certain mechanisms within the contracts to allow for, uh, you know, a, a, re, a remeasurement and rebalancing of, of steel prices, for example, which is, you're right is a, is a key component of foundations and wind turbines, obviously. Um, that doesn't protect for everything. And so you know, the, the supply chain and the OEMs are exposed to commodity prices and combine that with, you know, significant cost pressure and relatively low margins to start with. Um, I think that's you know, that that's a a key component of why we've seen particularly the turbine manufacturers, the offshore wind turbine manufacturers especially, um, you know, reporting you know, difficulties and losses over the last you know, uh, over the last few quarters. Thanks, Will. And just to follow up on something you you said there, just in terms of how the contracts are typically set out between developers and the OEMs, is there a kind of uh, sort of ceiling up to which the OEM must absorb? Um, you know, commodity price increases like steel and then a sort of above that that the, that the developer might have to contribute. I'm just interested as to how that, that typically works in the sort of contract. Yeah, and, and it and it depends on, um, yeah, I guess it depends on the strength of negotiators as well. And we, see, we do see different mechanisms in different contracts. But yes, there are sort of, there are ceilings and caps and limitations on which elements of the project which elements of the of the supply, I should say, are uh, can be considered for for remeasurement, and often it doesn't include everything. So, yes, there is you know, s- s- relatively significant exposure on the part of the OEM to commodity uh, price fluctuations. Obviously, it's in the interest of the developer to shift as much of that risk as possible onto the turbine manufacturers, um, and they've been you know, somewhat successful in that objective, I would say. Um, but that obviously means that the, 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 the turbine manufacturers need to, need to account for that risk, which, you know, I think in, in usual times, you know, there are mechanisms that can be used to hedge against, you know, commodity price risk, et cetera. But obviously that only covers a certain amount of the fluctuation. And then when we see these really big swings that are somewhat unforeseeable, um, I think that's when the, the the problems can become a bit more serious. Yes, of course, and I suppose we are in one of those more one of those environments, just in terms yes. of macroeconomic conditions, where you get those big swings at the moment. Yeah, and uh, just to ask a question, um, 
Obviously, we've seen over the last decade or so wind turbine manufacturers creating you know larger and larger and larger turbines. I wondered just why particularly offshore wind turbine development seems to have been so focused on creating larger and larger mm-hmm. machines. That might sound like a basic question, but it's sort of uh, I think interesting just to to look at um, how and why wind turbine development's gone in that direction you know yes and i think you know so it's coming back to the original point about you know this pressure to reduce cost and how that's sort of how that's worked its way through the system i think one of the one of the ways of reducing capex is by increasing the turbine capacity you know you can you know the, the turbine price doesn't doesn't increase linearly with capacity so um increasing turbine capacity is quite an efficient way of reducing cost uh, you know, and then that has knock-on impact of you, know, you. You require fewer foundations, fewer array cables, etc., for the same installed capacity. So there's a sort of fundamental advantage for increasing turbine capacity in terms of the overall project architecture and efficiency on a per megawatt from a per megawatt perspective. If that if that makes sense, um, and there's also you know from a kind of physical perspective, there's only so much you can do to increase the performance and efficiency of the turbines themselves so you know for for a given scale of turbine you know that turbine can only there's a sort of a physical limit to how much energy that turbine could extract from the wind um how efficient the blades can be how much energy exists in that you know cross-sectional area um and so you know increasing turbine capacity has been the the sort of main tool in, in, in the OEM's toolbox to, to reduce the cost. And I think that's where we've seen this, this sort of quick acceleration in, in turbine capacity and, you know, doesn't seem to be slowing down too much at the moment. Yes, of course. And um, just, I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, Will, but just to return to the point, um, what impact has the demand from developers to lower this levelized cost of energy for offshore wind projects had on the offshore wind turbine manufacturers? Um, I think it's been fundamental. I think it's really shaped how shaped the products that the that the turbine manufacturers have had to um, had to provide. And I and I think that's got pros and cons. I think it's there's no doubt that it's accelerated the the increase in um, in turbine capacities. Um, which is, and the ability of the turbine manufacturers to, or, or the, the speed at which turbine manufacturers can develop new machines, you know, you know, longer and longer blades, you know, far beyond what people thought was, 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 was possible or feasible um, five or 10 years ago. So, you know, it's really pushed the, the turbine manufacturers to provide the industry what they require in terms of machines. But I think it's all, that has also, uh, focused R and D efforts on this, you know, on this particular approach, um, and has also stretched the OEMs. I think to, you know, in terms of the investment that's need to be made in, in new in new manufacturing facilities um, to cope with these larger and larger machines, you know, had to move these, these components are no longer road transportable. So you know, the production facilities have had to move to the harbors effectively, um, and I think all of those investments and the pace at which the changes have had to be made, you know, are, are what's been sort of impacting on the margins. Yeah, because you know, and then add in all everything we've discussed around commodity prices, et cetera. But in terms of these business investments that had to be made to keep up with the pace and remain competitive, um, has also sort of compounded the issue. But as I said, I think this is, 
yeah, it's it, it, it's a positive thing. It's, you know, it has really pushed the industry to to provide the machines that have been required. But I think you know, there's no doubt that the turbine manufacturers have been you know, under pressure and stretched in terms of their capability. Um, you know, having had a history with turbine manufacturers, I'd like to say that you know, I think they're doing an amazing job at keeping up and, and you know, providing the equipment that's required for this transformational industry. But it's not it's not easy. Um, and I think that needs to be recognized as well. No, of course. I mean, as you point out, the kind of scale up we've seen in offshore wind over the last sort of decade and a half or so has been quite extraordinary. And I think, you know, offshore wind turbine manufacturers have certainly, you know, come to the party in terms of uh, delivering that. Um, it's just sort of striking, I suppose, that given that, you know, um, there are a limited number of manufacturers and they do have a certain amount of you know dominance in the in that in the market that a couple of them we've seen sort of posting losses and i think that's an you know a sort of indicator i suppose of, of the strain under which they're being placed no i think i think you're absolutely right and i think you know i think i hope it's a i hope it's a short-term um effect but you know it's clear that you know where you've got this a small number of suppliers to a very high growth industry um not being able to to operate at profits, you know, doesn't add up in the long term. So you know, I think something does need to change. And I think, you know, I think this is indicative of the, you know, the competitiveness, particularly to reduce price at the developers level, being passed, being, you know, having to be passed through to the turbine suppliers and the turbine suppliers operating in a very sort of low margin environment, um, you know, with these other, so you know, macroeconomic impacts, which are you know, again impacting on their profitability. So, yes, I think uh, it, it, it's it, it doesn't seem like a particularly sustainable situation at the moment. And and so, you know, I think there does need to be uh, some. It does need to be sensible in, you know, interrogation of that of, of that fact. And and the industry needs to come together to kind of just just to rebalance slightly to make sure that everyone's benefiting from this. Yeah, high growth, incredibly exciting industry. Yes, ex exactly. And I just a sort of follow up question, really, then about um, how the industry might be changed to just make this a more sustainable long term economic model for this really exciting industry for turbine manufacturers. I just wondered if a switch to a kind of contracts for difference model that provides a revenue floor, but also allows developers to keep any upside. You know, we've seen models like that used in places like the Netherlands. I wonder mm -hmm. if that would lessen pressure on manufacturers in relation to driving down the LCOE, because you've got um, obviously developers, as I say, able to realize a higher upside. Do you think that would make any difference here? Or are there sort of other consequences of, of running a CFD like that that would perhaps be you know negative anyway? I, I just wondered what your thoughts were about that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an interesting point. And I think um, just to, you know, I think to use the UK as an example, because I think, a, you know, I think it, it, it reflects a lot of projects, but also, you know, does reflect some of the challenges that are, that are creeping in at the moment. I think the CFD mechanism has been very successful in achieving what it set out to achieve um, in terms of, you know, incentivizing the industry to reduce cost, you know, coming down from, you know, around 120 pounds per megawatt hour in the first round down to you know under 40 now i think is quite quite incredible um 
But what that has done is put a lot of pressure on the supply chain to focus on minimizing costs and all of the things that we've, we've just been discussing. Um, one of the weaknesses of the CFD is, well, maybe a few weaknesses of the CFD is, as you say, you know, having that fixed price you know, with a floor and a ceiling means that there, while the downside is protected, there's also no upside. And that has been, you know, that's unattractive. It's been great. I think it's been great for lenders. It's been made, made projects very much, very bankable. But I think for, for equity owners, um, you know, it's, it's limited the upside potential. And that has been, I think that has been a challenge um, and has sort of been, a, has had an impact on, you know, the, the, yeah, the value of projects to to equity investors. I think another weakness, at least in, that in, in temporal terms, is that the projects are now pegged to very low electricity prices in a market where the wholesale price of electricity is is much higher. Um, and so, you know, the government is, you know, it is the government and the CFD providers are the ones who are who are winning effectively. Um, so I think that that is a, you know, that to me demonstrates that perhaps the CFD is no longer fit for purposes and is no longer achieving, you know, is not, no longer working in the best interests of the industry. Um, I think what you, what you describe having a, you know, downside protection with, with the upside for the projects, I think, you know, would be attractive. I think it would free up some, profit margin that could flow down to the supply chain. Um, I, I can see some sort of challenges in doing so. A, you know, from the government's perspective, from the CFD, from the CFD provider's perspective, you know, they would need to be sure that that was an equitable model. Um, and I think where, while electricity prices remain high, you know, the risk of the having to provide the downside protection is probably relatively low. Um, but, you know, these are 15 year contracts, you know, who knows what could happen in 15 years time. So, yeah, I think all of those considerations would need to be made, but I certainly agree that some, you know, revised model within the CFD or some kind of new incentive, you know, to provide that downside protection to, to, to keep the projects financeable but providing some more upside to developers, you know, could free up, you know, some profit margin that would flow down to the to the supply chain. I think, I suppose, my the challenge I have in saying that is that, you know, the turbine, even though there's only three or four in the offshore wind market, the the, you know, the turbine suppliers are still operating a competitive market, and it should still be the case that the one who can offer the lowest price, you know, should be. You know, successful <laughs> looking at it in simple economic terms and so i don't think it would be beneficial to for there to be too much you know price control um or indeed you know sort of cartel like behavior in terms of price setting but yeah i think i think it's fair to say that the current situation is is not sustainable for you know, all three of those main uh, those main turbines providers so yeah, I, I'm not an economist, and I can't really say you know where where the sensible endpoint would be, but hopefully that kind of highlights some of the the sort of the pull and push that exists within the CFD model, from from my perspective.
Thanks, Will. And I think that yeah, that was a really, really helpful analysis, I think, of, of the CFD more broadly, but also, you know, how that trickles down to, to manufacturers and, and, and developers and um, and governments. I think that was a really good sort of summation of how that, that all works. So, so thank you. I've really got a kind of a, a final point, Will, just about sort of reforming the way in which um, offshore wind development, I suppose, works and that's relating mostly to the to the manufacturers and it's a sort of two-part question the first i think you did actually draw attention to this earlier but it's just is a large portion of manufacturers r&d budgets devoted to developing larger turbines and sort of following on from that question could turbine manufacturing be reformed in terms of how capital is deployed to allow for a more sustainable economic model for manufacturers and i think you know we, we've We've been saying a little bit recently that perhaps you know there does need to be a, a shift away from this endless push for um, for larger and larger machines, um, and I think that you know if if the if the sort of economic landscape allowed for the turbine manufacturers to you know, take the foot off the gas of you know increasing capacity and try and you know maybe allow them to focus a little bit more on you know building in efficiency in the manufacturing processes and the and the supply of equipment to projects um, at a more consistent scale with you know maybe with a more consistent catalog of of, of machines to sell um, i think that would be you know, beneficial at least in the short to medium term to allow you know a little bit of as you say reform in how the turbine supply works. That said, you know, coming back to look at this from a from a competition perspective, you know, if it turned out that you know, totally you know, plucking names totally at, at random, Vestas were better at you know pushing capacity than Siemens, Siemens Gamesa, then you know why you know why not you know if 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 both can be true, you know, by, you know, the best supplier, then, you know, they should be allowed to do so and, and to take advantage of that fact. Um, but I think what we've seen at the moment is that all, all three of the key, the key suppliers to offshore wind projects are, are struggling in this, in this push for capacity. So I do think some reform in that and a, and a, and a focus more on you know, operational efficiency rather than turbine capacity could be beneficial both to the OEMs themselves and to the and to the industry at large. And I think you know just to, as a side point, looking at the um, looking at the the demand and the pipeline of projects, you know we need to be we as an industry need to deliver gigawatts and gigawatts of capacity in the next, you know we're not far off, you know you know looking at 2030 targets, you know those projects are going to need to start you know developing and maturing. You know, in the next year or two, um, and they're going to require turbines in four to six years' time. Um, and so, you know, the, pro the the industry needs to be gearing up to provide that capacity. Um, and I think, you know, as I said, you know, a focus on operational efficiency and delivering turbines at you know at great quantity is is possibly more important than pushing bigger and bigger scale 
Yeah, and I'm, and I'm sorry, I think I may have forgotten the second part of your question, Thomas. Oh, well, no, I think you, you've answered it. You know, Will, but it was really just sort of looking at, you know, deployment of, of capital in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of it's currently devoted, a lot of R&D budgets are currently devoted to sort of developing larger turbines. And, yeah. you know, I think you were saying something about sort of deploying capital to, you know, uh, increase sort of manufacturing efficiency and things like that. Yes, um, yeah. yeah. And I think maybe I can say, and I don't want this to sound sort of, I don't want to sound this, this to sound derogatory, but I think you know the the, the manufacturing techniques are still quite kind of hands on, uh, you know, and you know workshop type, um, you know, uh, processes used to, particularly for blades and and still with with nacelles as well. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for automation, and uh, and yeah building in more kind of uh, production line, you know, serial type production. Um, but that requires some consistency in the product. You know, if you're changing the, the, the machine you're building every year because they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you can't invest in that capability or it's much more difficult to invest in that capability. So I think, yeah, a little a shift in focus and where that R&D capital is deployed. I think could be could be beneficial. Thanks so much, Will. I'm very sorry to say that that's all we have time for today, but thank you once again for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's certainly been a really fascinating discussion. So thank you. Um, before we end, I would just like to take a moment to remind listeners about the Proximo Latin America 2022 Private Capital Forum event, which will take place in New York on 20 October. Leading lights from the LATAM energy and infrastructure space will explore the role of institutional capital in supporting the decarbonization of Latin America's energy, transport, and social infrastructure sectors. More details can be found on our website at proximoinfra.com. Thanks to everyone for listening, and be sure to join us again in two weeks' time for more of your latest project finance, energy, and infrastructure news and analysis from Proximo. Mm-hmm.